Hello, and welcome to the Bardic College Behind the GM Screen. I'm Rich. I'm Raz. And behind the GM screen is our attempt to talk to DMs, GMs, keepers, storytellers, and everybody else who makes your tabletop game enjoyable. And this is our second episode. We are uh, recording this the weekend before Halloween. So uh, kind of a bit of a horror theme, scary theme for today. And, you know, probably just listening to Raz is scary enough for me most days. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) So, but yeah, we have, uh, we have a a new uh, Call of Cthulhu keeper who will be speaking with us. And I say new is then new to the show, not new keeper. And we'll be talking Call of Cthulhu in particular, but uh, a lot of what we will talk about applies to all game masters, things that, that you need to do regardless of the game system you're running. Yeah, a lot of times we can learn from other systems keepers because maybe the system rule leads them a certain way or teaches them another way of handling an encounter or a, th- a way of thinking through a storyline. And it, it does. I mean, I know when I've run D&D groups, um, I bring in some harm elements into it and I'll try to do things that I've read from other stories or other other rule systems and try to acclimate them in and see if they work or the players like it. So uh, this is a great chance for, even if you're not maybe a fan of the genre as much, or if you're a massive fan, um, we can always learn from each other. That's sort of what this is about. Every day that every day we run and every hour on the table, we're hopefully learning and getting better. So we just try to cut that down into a small space. Right. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's all about the learning and trying to become better game masters um, because, you know, the better we are, the more fun our players have, the more fun our players have, the more fun we're having. I know that at the end of a session when my players just can't stop talking about it, that I've done well. Uh, I may not have done it all right, but I've done well. They had fun. And that's the important thing. Yeah. The only time I'm not having great fun is when they keep rolling critical successes um, <laughs> on every single roll, like the whole night. And that has happened. If you, uh, as you go into the shows that we record, there's gonna be one or two nights um, in the Cthulian campaign or the Thulian campaign where you're going to actually hear me bang my head on the table and uh, asking people to show me their roles on camera because I started to not trust. But you know what? They're good people. And I knew they were doing it. It was just mind boggling how well they were rolling for a, a stint there. But that's OK. What goes around comes around. Yeah. You know, uh, my D&D campaign isn't up on on the podcast yet, so everyone hasn't heard it. But I have horrible dice rolls. Doesn't matter if I'm the DM for the game or the player for the game. My dice rolls are horrible. Are you trying to promote, are you trying to get new players rich by saying you're a, you roll like shit? <laughs> that's awesome. Let's, let's make that like a tagline. Play our games. We roll like shit. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think that, uh, everyone's had enough of listening to us for, uh, for almost four minutes now. Yep. So we're going to bring on our keeper for the evening. This is Melinda Knowlton Folk. I hopefully I got that name correct. Welcome, Melinda. Hello. Welcome. So, how long have uh, how long have you been a, a keeper? I'm assuming we're we're going to stick mostly to Call of Cthulhu. I don't know if there's anything else you're running, but how long have you been uh, behind the screen? I have been a keeper f- off and on for oh my. 30 years. Um, and it's, it's kind of funny how I got started because I was very new to role playing and I'd always, I honestly, always since like high school had wanted to learn to play D and D, but I'm from a really small rural area. And while some of my friends were game, we had no clue what we were doing. 
so I get down to Athens, Ohio, um, and I'm in a calculus class where I, I make a lifelong friend. He still plays with us, actually, um, who played D&D. And he introduced me to, when he found out I wanted to play to some of his other players. And so the beginning of the next year, they helped me move out of the house I was living into. And we, we dumped everything in this new little house I was running by myself, went over to his place, and they taught me how to play D&D. And then there, and I married my DM, by the way. Um, then we, they introduced me to Athens Wargamers, which was the campus RPG group. And I started going there. I found a second edition Call of Cthulhu rule book in a local used bookstore that just looked really fascinating. And it's got old cartoons in the back about the game that just had me laughing. And so I bought it. They found out I had it and the group bugged me to, to run it. And I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'll try if you want. And so my first game had, I think like 20 people in it, Holy <laughs> not, not ideal for Call of Cthulhu or any other game. No, <laughs> mm -mm. <laughs> brave woman. <laughs> I didn't know any better. It helps. That was the first time I was a keeper. And I had I did not play a session until Origins three years ago. I, I realized I had never played in a game. And so wow. I played in my first first game there with um Aly Alyssa Ford, who's a great, great keeper, by the way. I had so much fun. But that was my very first time playing. It had been 20 some years. So have you gotten to play since? I have some off and on because I've been doing convention GMing with the Cult of Chaos, which I love. Uh, so I've gotten to play some. And of course, we still play Dungeons and Dragons or Pathfinder. The group has varied off and on over the years, but we are back to a group that has the original four of us in it. Well, that must I be nice. It is. I think it's just phenomenal. I am so grateful for that. Um, and then we have like my best friend who's over in Dayton drives over here. We play in person, like every, we try You're every lucky. other week, but as yeah. you commented, um, earlier to me, life does happen. Um, like we won't be playing this weekend. It's my daughter's birthday, but we still try to get together every couple of weeks and play. Um, we're up to fifth edition now from the combination of first and second. And, uh, then during the week, there is a group I started at the local gaming shop um, after my eldest daughter's freshman year of high school. I was just going to run it over the summer for the kids, mainly. I think I had 13 in my first game session of that, too, by the way. It doesn't work as well for D&D &D either. Um, <laughs> you just yeah. have to throw a lot of whatever you're throwing at them at them. Um, right. But we've, in various forms, have continued playing uh over the years she'll be well she'll be 23 halloween uh so that has been a really good time and um i've literally gotten one of the player gotten to watch one of the players grow up he was 13 i think when he joined our group and he's a college sophomore now it just blows my mind yeah it's crazy isn't it and we run a variety of things there so i'm running call of cthulhu again for them which they really like right now we're doing a one shot well i could build back up the i'd finished the the campaign arc that i had but they want to keep playing with these characters for a while so i had to come up with a continuation 
and I, Cthulhu is a little harder to do that with because <laughs> you've got to know where you're going and kind of how you, you're going to get them there. Whereas with D&D, I could, you know, see to the pants that, okay, well, here's going to be in our, our encounter for the night. We'll eventually wind up at the end game. Uh, at least that's that's how it is for me. I, I don't know about you guys. Um, when Yeah, when I run it, it's, I, I, I do a little bit of off the seat of the pants. I have a general idea where I need them to be at the end. But I'm sure like you run into the same thing, especially with groups that large. It's um, oh. they beat you up to get there or you're beating them up to get there eventually. So it's kind of like they take you left. Yeah. You want to go right. But every GM or a storyteller suffers through that. So, yeah, it's the same thing. But I do have a question, if I may, before we continue. Yeah. Do you get inspiration for being married to the DM? I'm just wondering if that's extra or not, because I my <laughs> my wife used to play vampire just before our kids were born. And we're going back 30 years. And uh, every once in a while, I get a dirty look like. Uh, I should have made that role. Okay, well, you didn't. But that's not... <laughs> no, I do. I might have back in the day when we were like, you know, first dating, but right. we're coming up on 29 years married now. So um, I am the reason for a very interesting uh, character creation role, which I have no idea how uh, Wizards of the Coast got our role and added it to the fifth edition rule book. But uh uh, we re-roll our ones because, Rich, I roll terribly, too. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> so bad. Um, and I can I can verify that um, if if you've heard of a gentleman by the name of Seth Skorkowski, um, <laughs> who has a great YouTube channel, um, he also rolls badly. I found out this past Monday night because I'm also in a When We Can Get Together group online where for the first time all of us including the the gm are playing alien Ooh, you want to talk the, the about the new mood. one oh that that game is um seth couldn't roll to save his life <laughs> 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 i think he rolled worse than i do but um no i i don't often get inspiration from my husband and i'm yeah. i'm to the point now where i'm usually okay if a character dies or something um, but we're pretty good about actually not killing characters somehow. I, the guys will have something swoop in at the, at the last minute or they're not nearly as vicious at killing people as, as I hear some people are. I actually have a very low kill count for Call of Cthulhu of all things. Me too. I, I get teased about it. <laughs> but, well, okay, so low kill count, but how many have gone insane? You know what? That's a low count too. A handful. I try, but they're good at rolling. That's all I Players. can figure out. Oh, yeah, the best laid plans. They ruin everything. Oh, my gosh. I was at a convention running um, the search for Brian Boru last year. And it is, oh, my gosh, it is um, an Irish scenario, or it's set in Ireland. And it is one of the darkest games i have ever read or run it's it's a difficult game and the players have to completely buy in um to pull it off because it's a lot of role playing it should have a high kill count by the end i think the most i managed was two in one game wow i know i don't i i i don't know i kill players about as well as i roll dice i guess <laughs> We all it, had a it, good time. We that's the, you know, that's the key. That's yeah. the key. So when we're, we're talking about horror games and a you mentioned alien, which is one that you sort of 
sparked into the, the, the topic we were thinking about for this evening. Um, and that's really keeping the mood. Um, as a as a horror gamer myself, and as a, you know, a, I run Vampire and Call of Cthulhu, and I'll, I'll basically jump in any horror game and try to run it. But um, <laughs> keeping people on the edge of their seat, keeping the, the, t- the tension built, especially because some people's fear reaction is to chuckle and giggle and make a joke, right? I mean, you, you, you see those people at, at wakes and funerals, they're, they're over in the corner and they and you understand that as an adult, listen, they're just trying to cope the way they cope. That's their mechanism. <clears throat> but at the table, if you have one, one giggler and f- four or five that are really super serious, trying to keep everybody in, you know, on the same page and, and pushing forward. And you've had big groups. How do you go about handling that? Or even at a convention where you're sitting down with four, five, six new people, uh, they turn their ticket and they sit down and you've got four hours to beat them up, keep them on task, and then send them out the door with a pat on the ass saying, thanks for playing. And they're supposed to go and rant and rave about how great it was. It's tough. So how do you affect mood or how do you keep it? Um, well, I have to say at conventions, you have a little bit of a, a leg up already because they are there to play. So they come prepared to sit down and spend the next four hours immersed in whatever game it is and have a good time. And they know they've only got four hours. So that really helps. And I was really nervous the first time I did it three years ago. Um, but it went wonderfully because they just got right to it. My my game here at home, they know they don't have that time constraint necessarily. So sometimes I, I do have to kind of prompt them to get them moving. <laughs> I'm like, okay, guys, what are I, I'm very good at asking, you know, what are you guys doing next? Here's what you've got. Where are you going to go next? You know, what's going on? Right. As far as mood, I have learned and I... I'll come back to the Brian Boros scenario here in a moment with that. Um, I have learned that we can be laughing and joking around the table, but you put them in character and they are completely in character. It is, it's pretty amazing. And I've, I've got that happening here, but um, the best example I think was two of the, because Brian Boru is so incredibly dark. I mean, by the time I was done reading it, I wanted to slit my own wrists figuratively not literally um right but i had a, I had two different groups um the one group they were really good at joking and carrying on because they were guys who all knew each other the other thing is usually at conventions i'm the only female at the table okay <laughs> which makes it interesting um so you've kind of that a uh, little aside there you've kind of got to take command right off the bat i've never had i can't say never i think once i had a table where i feel like um, that really did work against me. That's interesting, though, because Chaosium claims that Call of Cthulhu players are almost fifty-fifty. You know, they they, they um yeah they they claim that. I, I mean, in my group, it is because I happen to just know the people involved. But do you find that as, as your yourself that it's almost half and half? Not at conventions. Okay, I, I'm not finding that, and I don't know if it's be, but I do have quite a few women at my table. But if I had to bounce it, it'd be maybe 75, 25. Okay. Or 70, 30, somewhere in there, I would say. Because I have far more tables that are entirely male than tables that are mixed. And I don't have a lot of minorities, dang it, which I would love to see more of at my table. But um, we had, I, I get a bunch of different nationalities. Some of these guys were from Australia at this particular table. And they are cracking jokes the whole time. They, 
I had to stop a couple of times and just recover because I was laughing so hard. But when it came to what their characters were doing in game and how they were interacting as characters, they had the atmosphere there. They realized, and I started by saying, you've got to buy into this or this is the scenario is going to fall flat. And as far as their characters were concerned, they all did. And it was, it was pretty dark, but we had some good role playing. Um, the second table where we're kind of joking around, these guys were just, they were incredible. I, they had me in tears a couple of times over the choices that they were having to make in the game, because it's, it's a game about sacrifice. And so while they are cracking these hysterical jokes and comments as players within the game itself, they have fully gone there. They are so in character. They're arguing over or with each other over who's going to be making the next sacrifice to bring back this dead king to to save their country and it it was heartbreaking and yet so fulfilling as a keeper to watch them go there and then provide the next opportunity for them to have to make a decision because that's really what a lot of the game is so i i found and we're the same way here at the house quite often. You know, I they crack awful jokes, dear God. Uh, it's a good thing that we are not a broadcast game because it would be so politically incorrect sometimes. Oh, sure. Can happen. <laughs> but, you know, you're with your friends, so it's a little different. We we know what they're like, really, and where they're coming from. But they'll still, we'll still quite often make the difficult decisions and something will happen and we'll go, oh crap i don't want to roll these dice i don't want to see what happens next in the current current game i'm running um the call of cthulhu game i'm running um one of the flotsam and jetsam scenarios that uh chaosium released last fall and um, i'm not familiar with that one but okay oh they are marvelous there are four and they're either standalone or you can string them together as a mini campaign um, and they're all four, they all have a different author. So somebody, and it, it, it's really kind of neat. Um, so I'm running the second one, uh, trying to, The Inheritance. And Anna, oh man, I'm not sure I want to give away any spoilers, but I kind of have to, to tell the story. One of the characters has deep a deep one heritage that they didn't know about. Hmm. So this is not something that's figured in the backstory of the characters as they're created. Although they do suggest if you're going to run it as the mini campaign, you could do that. And then the character may or may not know when they start, but I just, and we'd already run the first session, but they're, they're playing, they could pick different characters for this one. So what you do is you have them roll luck rolls and the highest luck is the unfortunate uh, character. And it happened to hit our youngest player, but he is so, so good at what he does. Um, and he didn't know until they're at the reading of the will. And my characters being ever so, um, my players being ever so cautious, had their characters all go into the reading of this will without giving their real names. <laughs> <laughs> so they're all using aliases. That's the other thing I've learned as, as a, a game master is you've really got to be able to think on your feet. But the, the lawyer is up there very nervously reading the will because he realizes he's in a room full of deep ones of some sort. And he mentions the character's real name in passing. And I look over at um, the person playing this character and the look on his face was just priceless. 
and he he went he totally went with it he's like um yeah i'm just uh, he had to roll to keep a poker face so he didn't give away you know the shock and horror <laughs> right i see this character's name called and then they all have to proceed to try to process what does that mean for him i'm learning i learn a lot from watching other people run too when i sit with different gms so one of the things i'm learning is words you know how you describe a scene and um I use my hands a lot more expressively, and I think it was mentioned in the first episode of Behind the Screen. Um, you, you just got to go with it, you know, go with the voice, go with the the expression or whatever, and don't worry about how the others are going to react, which helps bring them into the mood as well. So if I'm describing a really dark um, moment and you know, I'm being really expressive and I'm full in on it. It's easier to pull the players in. And I am normally a rather self-conscious person. I don't like to draw a lot of attention to myself, which makes it odd that I'm sitting here as a GM. But um, it was neither do f- I. <laughs> it, it was very freeing to uh, give myself permission to do that. And I think that my games are a lot better. It's not just, oh, you... You go up to this house and you knock on the door and somebody answers. You know, I will try to lay the atmosphere. Like maybe it's a perfectly normal looking day. And then the person who answers the door um, is described as sallow looking, like they haven't been out in the light or the daylight for, you know, weeks and their hair is stringy and they're disheveled looking. And it totally shifts how you're perceiving the scene all of a sudden i'm much better in writing than i am in speaking so i'm trying to learn to bring some of that into my descriptions when i'm gming and i think that's the best way to keep the mood going how do you describe a scene right so when you when you're doing these descriptions um do you do you use a lot of the um non-descriptive descriptors that Lovecraft used where, you know, he would say something is so horrible, but not really describe it? Or do you try and go for, for real detail? I honestly couldn't go for real detail if I wanted to, <laughs> because my brain doesn't go there. So I try to land somewhere in the middle. Sometimes I'll just go, it's it's too horrible for you to to comprehend if I'm dealing with perhaps something mythos related. And there are some scenes where like, you know, the person's just melting. Well, I'm not going to go into, I'm like, you know, you see things that their skin is sliding off their bodies. You know, like the scene from um, the first Indiana Jones movie where they all just kind of dissolve and, and, and that'll spark it enough. Um, I found I'm really, I struggle with detailed description sometimes and I'm the same way in my writing. If you ask me what a character in one of my stories looked like, I'd have a really hard time describing them. I I completely understand that. Um, I'm very good at the technical writing and getting straight to the point. It's been this way since, you know, high school papers. But now trying yeah. to, to get that full description, trying to really evoke an emotion without telling them this is how you feel. Yeah. Although sometimes I will go, you know, you suddenly get this sense of um, overbearing disgust or horror 
it just kind of seeps into you as you watch this happen or you realize what's going on. But for the most part, I try to let the characters own their reactions. And sometimes, you know, they're like, we have, we have one guy who really enjoys role playing and he's getting a lot better at actually acting in character. But sometimes he'll go, you know, I pull out my gun and I shoot it and we're going, really? Is that really how your character is going to react right now? When in doubt, pull out the gun. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, apparently. <laughs> but the good part of having the other other players go, is that really how your character is going to react right now? Helps bring them back in and I think helps helps make someone a better role player. Because really, Call of Cthulhu is definitely not Dungeons and Dragons in that I'm going to pull out a weapon and whack it. it you've got to role play it. And I'm... I know that there are some campaigns or scenarios you could probably just, you know, run your way through hacking and slashing or connecting A to B and none of that fun side stuff. But you're missing so much of the game if you do that. I like a lot of role play even in my Dungeons and Dragons sometimes. And we'll have some sessions that I've played in where that's all we do. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we, we've all want sessions uh, that have more role play. I mean when I first started playing RPGs in general, you know, it was all about the action. Um, but now I want to, I want a fully developed character. I want to interact with fully developed characters. And if I think my character would be afraid, that's what I want to convey to everybody else at the table or at the computer, whatever it may be. I guess also I should, um, probably I'm thinking of someone who's been playing with the same people for many years, but if you have someone who's new to that particular game or new to gaming at all, which I've had quite a bit of, um, especially at the conventions, which is really exciting for me because I'm the first person to introduce them to this marvelous game I love. It's good to sometimes, if if they're oh, if they're coming at it um, with that kind of mentality where I'm just going to rush through and I'm not really having to think how my character was, it's good to pause sometimes and go, okay, now think about it in a moment. Your character's just been confronted with a bunch of living dead that you watch climb out of the grave and come shambling towards you. Is that really how you're, how are you going to react or how would your character react if they're suddenly confronted with that? And just take a moment and let me know what you're going to do. And, try to remember as um, the game master, as a keeper, to try to bring them into that setting and the atmosphere um, that you're going through that so many Cthulhu games, you know, have. Because it, it's it's dark. You're, you're going to eventually go crazy. And I, I tell people that. And it's, it's great at conventions. Um, most experienced convention players already know this if they've played Call of Cthulhu at a convention, but I'll tell people my philosophy is you've only got four hours. You're never going to play this character again. Have fun. You know, if you die, that's not a big deal. Make it happen in a blaze of glory. Have a good story about that character death. If you go crazy, same thing. And I was so excited. My last year running, I had a friend jump in to play that I hadn't played it with in a while. And it was a demo. And I actually did get to drive him crazy. It was so exciting. Because usually <laughs> I roll like crap and he rolls really well. 
and he went with it and the other three players at the table weren't real sure what was going on but it it made for a memorable session because i don't they were new they had never been confronted with that before I'm trying to remember what he was suddenly afraid of everything i think and he's a really good role player he larps that, so that he, sounds like me on most mornings <laughs> <laughs> i can i can um identify with that so when to close to sort of keep in the mood theme just for a second yeah. I'm 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 hearing a lot of a lot of good tools. Stop a moment, you know, bring the bring the player back into the situation. Say, is this really how you would do it? Give them a second to rethink their position or their action. Yeah. Give them a chance to kind of review the like put the mental image of not just you know taking the shotgun and blasting away, you know, aimlessly, yeah. but live in that second. And I'll, I'm I'm wondering if you feel the same way about some of this. It sounds like, and, and you had made a, another comment before I get to that, where it's D&D and, and Call of Cthulhu do play a little differently as far as the RP level. Like, not that there can't be heavy, heavy RPG campaigns, because Rich runs a couple that have been very heavy RP. But I think going in, there's a more of a combat-y sort of dice. You know, you want to get to combat because that's how you level. Where in Call of Cthulhu, you want to survive because maybe you get to play the character again. Who knows? Um, but the players have to be... Do you think that the level of the player has to be so invested that they, like you said, they police the table and keep the mood? Or is it still something that you 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 rely on a lot as a keeper and your back knowledge to keep pulling them back in and saying, okay, come together? Or Because I know I count on my players too. Like every once in a while, I'll look at them and be like, does somebody want to talk about this? Like I'm hurding cats here. No, oh, that's not wrong. You know, <laughs> yeah. how do we, it, it's a give and take. And that's at any table, but in Cthulhu, I think that has to be there, especially in those darker moments. I have to be prepared to go, <laughs> prepared um, to go, okay, guys, come on. You know, you've got to, you've got to make a decision. We need to get moving. Sometimes I'll look at the clock and go, you know, we've only got an hour left to play. And this is my regular group. Um, what are you going to do next? So sometimes I have to be prepared as the keeper to step in and, and bring them back into what, we're trying to accomplish. Um, I'm at the point where I've played with these guys long enough. I usually, I know I can rely on them somewhat to help if need be, which is nice. Um, but I know that ultimately, you know, I, I took on the role of making the game run unless they're absolutely not doing anything um, at all helpful. And they just continue that way, in which case we should probably just end the session. It's just not going to be a good night to play. Um, oh, shoot. I forgot where I was going with that. I'm sorry, guys. No, it's, uh, I think the point's almost there. Yeah, it's yeah. it's the idea um, that, you know, the table polices itself, but at the end of the day, you're still re- you feel still responsible for driving yeah. the, the story. Yeah. Because I know what's going on, so I know where I have to get them to. And they don't always. They just know they've got to go somewhere. They've got to make a decision. Um, I, I like, I'm, I'm lucky at that, in that the people that I play with are willing to push one another to do that. And I have to admit, sometimes as a player, I've just gone, okay, I'm tired of sitting here. I'm just going to do this while they uh, try to figure out what they're doing. <laughs> and that... <laughs> <laughs> and then they're like, oh, crap, the thief's off to somewhere. Um, Maybe a good tool as a keeper. I, did the keeper leave? Is the keeper leaving? <laughs> the keeper's going away for a minute because the keeper doesn't want to strangle you. <laughs> I'm going to sit here and play on my phone. When you guys make a decision, let me know. Um, and you had asked something about, you know, 
how I describe things as well earlier. And mm -hmm. I, I think it's very important. My mother always used to tell me when I was figuring out what to wear that it's important to leave something to the imagination. You know, don't put everything, Absolutely. you've got yep. all of your assets on display, so to speak. And I think that's important in RPG storytelling as well, because my, I was never, and I, I was a teenager in the eighties when the slasher movies became ever so slasher and action adventure, you know, how much blood can we throw at it? Um, I was never a fan of that. I'm more of a fan of, of Hitchcock and the slow burn and the buildup of things. And I think that if you leave, especially in verbal and in the verbal word and in the written word, if you don't tell them every little thing in detail, their brain's going to fill in so many little horrific things that you could never think of and painting their mental picture. Yep. I, I like to give them enough to get it started, um, which lets me off the hook on the fact that I just don't see those tiny details. <laughs> but I think it also is uh, personally, I think it's a far more effective um, storytelling tool because I don't know about you guys, but my imagination can come up with some really horrific things when turned loose. Yeah. I mean, I, I get that with, uh, you know, trying to describe anything, um, you know, how, how do you describe something that's so horrific that, you know, it makes you feel madness coming on? Like if you say, you know, you see tentacles. All right. I see tentacles. Uh, you know, that doesn't convey as much, but, you know, leaving it a little bit vague. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, but a, a, a black tentacle dripping with um, green slime reaching up between a, a hole in the floorboards floundering around in your general direction that carries a lot more color yeah absolutely the funny thing is i don't watch a lot of horror either <laughs> oh you don't my no my husband and my daughter do but um no i don't i've watched a fair amount but i like the classics i like this black and white stuff i like like you i i want macabre i'm not looking to be you don't have to paint me in the you know the human centipede will never be on my playlist no. but Pit in the pendulum will be, and I <laughs> yeah. that you know I that's where I want to be. I want to be where you put me in a place that's uncomfortable and a little skin crawly and awkward, and makes me think about all the bad things that are about to happen. Far more than show them to me and let the effects guys do all the work. That doesn't work. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, it's not the way to do I, it for me. I still think the scariest movie I have ever seen is Hitchcock's The Birds. Uh, my daughter Kayla would agree with you. My youngest. Yep. Yep, she hates the birds. And I remember it every time I see a flock gathered going one direction or the other. <laughs> <laughs> Rich, what's your scariest movie? Um, that, you know, it's a good question. Uh, as a kid, I couldn't, I couldn't watch anything scary. If something was going to jump out at me, I, I had my, my hands over my eyes. You know, I was, I was a coward, you know, didn't matter if I thought it was going to be scary. My eyes were covered. Now, um, what is it? We just saw, um, we just watched us and up until the actual killing starts, us felt very creepy, but probably, uh, the one that sticks with me the most is, uh, I think it was the serpent in the rainbow. Oh, that's on my number two. Ooh. That, that one really just, you know, 
It just creeped me out because they made it feel plausible. Yeah, that's a good one. It's kind of like the scariest um, Stephen King book is Cujo about the St. Bernard with rabies. Right. Yep. Because <laughs> it's plausible. Yeah. <laughs> Salem's Lot did a good one for me. That I thought that was decent. But I like vampire movies. Um, my scariest, if I have to pick, it's either going to be Serpent in the Rainbow or it's going to have to be, and it, people are going to laugh at me and I don't care. But when it came <laughs> out, I didn't know it was fake. I thought it was supposed to be real. The original Blair Witch Project. As low budget as it was, I sat there and I didn't know that it, it was, I, I thought it was found footage. I felt a Klein and Sinker. And I watched it and I had to pause that VCR three times. That's a video cassette recorder for you young people. Um, and I was like screaming and going, oh, no, I'm not doing this. This is unacceptable. <laughs> and it's just, it was, I just, it hit every button for me. Lost in the woods, map don't work, compass don't work, witch chasing you. No, no, done. <laughs> you know, it was brilliant. It really was. I haven't seen it. Like I said, I don't watch a lot of horror. But I've read up on it, and yeah, the way they approached it, it had to have been terrifying until you learned that it was all, you know, it was pretty much all scripted. Yeah. So I could see that. It, it, it did a number on me. So. All right. So, Rich, any other questions? Um, I think Melinda's done a wonderful job covering a lot of the, the stuff of, as far as the background and, and mood. I, I, I've, I picked up some things I want to try. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's, yeah, it's one of those things where, you know, a little preparation and keeping everybody on point. And again, even if it's not during game, if it's before the game, uh, if it's during a break, making sure everybody's aware, like, you know, you need to be reacting as your character. Uh, You know, if your character has these fears, you've got to convey them in there. And just reminding, just gentle reminders about those kinds of things. I think that would be huge in in helping keep that whole mood at the table uh, to, to for that fear, that horror that you're trying to go for. So, Melinda, real quick, if I could interrupt you, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Um, you, I hear that you write and that you that you're better with the expressive with the word, written word in your own words than than actually describing sometimes. Do you write your own homebrew or do you strictly run things? Because I know you mentioned a lot of, you know, actual published uh, scenarios and stuff. Do you, do you do any homebrew running as well? Um, I had done nothing but published scenarios up until a couple of years ago because I just didn't feel confident enough with the complexity of a Cthulhu scenario. Um. And then I, I got this idea and I created my own and I ran with it. And it, it was just classic zombies, to be honest. I think I threw a Shuggath in near the end. And it went really well. The, that's the one where they want to keep playing. Um, oh, great. You know, I had um, classic Haitian zombies and um, an old um, African-American... I want to say wise man who it, it touched on um, slavery because it's set in South Carolina. Um, so he, he was, he had been a slave and his ghost. Um, I think I hit a lot of good themes and, and I'm saying, you know, I had African-American slaves and I had Haitian zombies and I try to keep it very, um, I try to be very sensitive about things, even though I knew none of my players uh, would necessarily be offended um 
if I discount stereotypes, but what's the fun in a stereotype? Right. Um, so even with like the, uh, the wise man, there's some complexity there. And he actually, he, he scared them. His ghost showed up and they, they headed the other way it, every time it was, it was beautiful. And I, I tried to have a rationale for tapping into the things that I was using. So it wasn't necessarily somebody from Haiti that was raising the zombies this way. It was a cultist who'd figured out and was using the zombies to do their heavy work and things like that. Um, and like I said, it did. It went once I fully found my stride, it went really well. Um, I'm working on part two, which was triggered by, I think they said it was the world's oldest existing library. It's in a monastery in the Middle East, and I could not tell you where without looking it up now. Um, but they found that a lot of the texts had, were something called palimpsests, where they have layers of text over text. I just read that article as well. Hmm. Yeah. And I was looking for something to go with because they said they wanted to, they wanted to keep playing. And I read that article and I was like, oh, palimpsests could be fun to play with. So my, my brain's processing that now. <laughs> yeah, awesome. I find, I read a lot of uh, articles on just odd things that come up and Bruno can attest to it, Rise can attest to this, that uh, when I find something cool that I think he can use in a, a Cthulhu campaign, he gets a link to it. And it's always, why are you sending me this link? <laughs> no, it's we not should... why. I know why. I'm just trying to figure <laughs> out how I can use it because I'm already in the middle of Nazi Germany. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's like it's a little difficult. They're going after a blooded swastika and you're sending me, you know, an Islamic library found, you know, <laughs> it's 5,000 or 4,000 years old. I can't do anything with it yet. <laughs> Sure you can. You can work it in. My oh, problem sure. is my characters become married or my players become married to their characters and I can't get them to play anything else. You know, I um I did my first Gen Con last year with the Cult of Chaos and I actually won the box set for um Masks of Narlathotep. I really want to run this campaign. Yeah. Although my That's daughter, a- when I got the Shadows Over Stillwater book in the mail, thank you, by the way, um, my daughter looked at it and she goes, I play that. So there's hope. <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome. And listen, it was, there's only, it was random. So you, congratulations. You're welcome. It really was. <laughs> I'm glad I made, you know, <laughs> it's just one of those things. I, we rolled it and went up. Oh, there it is. Winner. So that was great. Yeah. I just, I was like, what? I had totally forgotten. It's, it's embarrassing to admit, but I had, and I got that, that notification. And I'm like, that can't be real. I'm being scammed. <laughs> Who is this? Hence the tone of the reply. <laughs> First reply. You mean the one that said I'm calling the cops? I, I, I didn't take it seriously. <laughs> I, I let, I just said, okay, let me, let me just rewrite this one more time. <laughs> We've got to be careful nowadays. They're pretty. Oh, oh Yeah pretty good i think i have a young man from nigeria who's trying to string me along but we'll see i, I i'm you know when that, you get that's the really just request, when you get the friend <laughs> request and especially if you're female and you have no friends in common and they've only been on facebook a short period of time warning bells go off oh no what that see that's what's happening now i get it all right i'll fix all that sorry <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. 
So one of the things we also like to do um, with keepers, and again, this is not to put anybody on the spot, folks at home, uh, folks listening. This is more or less to just, there are some things in game systems that when they, when they write the rule, it makes perfect sense to the, to the author. And when you put it in gameplay, sometimes it has to be modified or adjusted sometimes because of the environment, the situation that the, the, the keeper finds himself in or otherwise it's just a rule that doesn't really work for them. So we're just going to throw a couple things at you, Melinda, and just okay. tell us, tell us in, if you have any, you know, examples or how you may have handled it or how you would handle it if somebody did this at the table with you. So one of the things in, in Cthulhu that in call of Cthulhu seventh edition, the one that I'm working with, with Pulp Cthulhu kind of mixed yeah. into it is pursuit. There is so many, you know, there's so many ways of handling pursuit and closing distance. Do you really rely heavily on the rolls? Do you go by dexterity? Do you go by the size of the player running? How do you handle it? Or do you do you literally leave it up to just random chance? I want to say all of the above. <laughs> okay. Um, I love their pursuit rules and that they're kind of streamlined and and they're fairly easy to when reading to make sense but then you put it in practice and you have to tailor it to the specific situation so right i do a mix of of roles and well what just keeps the story going and makes a good story and do i need what they're chasing to get away or do i need to catch them so i'm very fast and loose with that um, you know, if I've got a really fast lith dexterous player chasing something, I I'll admit they're going to have a better chance of catching whatever it is. Right. It, it just makes sense. I started playing RPGs with a mix of first or yeah, first and second edition D and D. And it was very much a case of the rules were just guidelines back then. And the guys that I played with followed that that advice very strongly so my foundations are don't let it get in the way of the game <laughs> right which i think still needs to be put into almost every rule book and reinforced over and over again yeah um if you're gonna sit there and and argue rules or take it at some point there has to be a decision made roll a die <laughs> you know if, if nobody can agree roll a die and then we'll talk about it after the session but you gotta keep, keep moving the, the story forward otherwise people are twiddling their thumbs breaking out their phones doing other things like you talked about. So yeah, um, this one's a spur of the moment one that just came into my head. Have you ever used appearance for anything in a game? The stat? Um, I want to say yes, but I can't remember the specifics. <laughs> that was on a Call of Cthulhu uh, Facebook page I was on. I'm on, you know, because you monitor other people's and you, and, you, and you join the communities and stuff. And somebody yeah. said, I'm getting so tired of having appearance that means nothing. And I was like, wow, let me think about that. So I was wondering, I, I, I know I ended up weaving it in uh, to a situation, but I was wondering if you ever had. I Yeah, I think I take appearance into account when the characters are interacting with NPCs, even if it isn't a case where they need to make a social skill role. Because let's face it, as humans, be, human beings, we tend to respond better to someone who's more attractive unless they're so attractive they're intimidating you know it that's just psychology and human nature and it might have a bearing on how the npc 
response to the players. Say, you know, you've got a very attractive female character. Well, that NPC might suddenly get flirty in the way they're responding, or that could go the other way, you know, a really good looking male character. And all of a sudden the barmaid he's trying to question is more interested in getting his attention than answering his questions. So yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I use it. Yeah. I, I, I feel the same way. There's got appearance had to hold up for something. Um, so I ended up, you know, somebody actually can said, Listen, I'm not so good at intimidate. I'm not so good at this. I'm not so good, but I, they're okay. But I got a really high appearance. Uh, okay, so the the initial sight of you, as long as you don't open your mouth, may lure somebody. Because I'm like, because anything else is going to be conversational. But you're right. From across the room, if you give the the enticing one finger of, hey sailor, come on over here, yeah. uh, you know maybe that works, and and it at least give you a chance to to set the stage. So, uh, yeah, you can, you know, uh, that's it. But again, it's one of those stats where you look at it and go necessary, uh, but we use it as long as we can find a way to make it work. So that's, that's really good. Um, sanity. There are so many rules oh on how we lose it. <laughs> there are so many times it is subjective on how much you should lose the penalties. Uh, people then say, oh, I've seen this before. I shouldn't lose this three points. How do you handle sanity? And do you go by what the books say for like, Oh, you look at a shag off Lord, that's immediately 2d 10. Or do you temper it to where they are in the story? Cause if you know, there's another big encounter coming, do you scope it back? How do you handle sanity? Um, by slowly losing my own sanity. I have, I have the hardest time. And like I said, I've been running it probably 30 years. I have the hardest time keeping sanity straight in my head. I tend to go with the roles suggested in the book or the scenario for the most part but like if they're only getting a glimpse of a shuggoth i don't think it's going to be as big of a sanity loss i will temper it some if i know something bigger is coming along unless i'm running like a one-shot scenario in which case hey the faster you go well maybe not the faster i try not to drive kill anybody or drive any crazy anybody crazy until at least the halfway point of the game i, I don't want to put them out in the first 10 minutes so, yeah, I, I play a little loose with the sanity roles. Is If a, a character goes temporarily insane or whatever, um, I'm lucky enough I've had players who were really good at role-playing it. So if they're going to do a good job role-playing it, I'm not going to sit there and, and hammer or, or agonize over what's written in the rule book. We're just going to go with it. And sometimes they've suggested like their temporary insanities. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Which is great. I think my, as a keeper, my my one of my favorite moments is when I'm describing something and I don't ask them to make a sanity roll. I'll be, <laughs> I'll hear like, and it's happened in the sh on the show. Um, <laughs> keeper, I'm going to go ahead and roll for sanity. I'm like, oh, go ahead. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad that I got there. I was, I figured it was going to take me at least another six or seven sentences, but you <laughs> roll away. <laughs> you know? I've had that happen too. Oh, I love my, that because you literally found their spot. Like you're like, oh, this is the one that got them. Okay, good. My favorite instance of of uh, a character developing a phobia, and it wasn't it wasn't in a game I was running. Um, a friend had a, a long standing, and it was definitely horror based. Um, adventure Tales of the Aeon Society by White Wolf campaign going, and um, my husband's character wound up afraid of salt. Salt was poison. It would kill you. Salt water, because we were on an island, you know, salt water was the worst, but right. any food with salt in it. 
And he kept that up the entire rest of the game until it just, we just kind of petered out and didn't play it anymore. But his character wouldn't go near, put a salt shaker in front of him and he'd start to freak out. That's awesome. It, it was I like that the one. best phobia playing I think I've ever seen. Yeah. That sounds like a lot of fun. It was. <laughs> Especially if you as the keeper can, can work it in. And they have low blood pressure. It, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, if it's I mean, a, especially an ongoing campaign, I will try to remember what their phobia is. So I try to, if I'm handing out a phobia, I try to make sure it's something I can use later on if it's something that's going to stick with them. So I have that as a, as a hook or at least an additional role-playing thing. But yeah, I, I, I think I'm probably the most inconsistent with sanity. No, you, I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> I get it. I, I'm, I, it happens to all of us. I think it's just one of those things where, you know, it's the, you're only so many hours in and something tragic does happen or they, and some you roll it and go, Oh my God, if I take that many from them now, they're never get. I'm not even getting halfway. I got to back this up. I got to do something. I, I think we all have to fudge with that a little bit. Now my players also know to have a concept for a backup character already in mind. I like that. When we play call of Cthulhu. <laughs> <laughs> Please have friend B. Yeah. <laughs> Just in case. Oh gosh. So anything else, Rich? We No, no. I think, uh, you know, we're hitting the uh, end of our hour here with uh, Melinda and yep. we don't want to take up too much of her time. We know she's a, a busy uh, keeper and we'll make sure she gets everything set for her next campaign so she doesn't ruin anything for her players. Uh, but thank you, Melinda. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for speaking with us. Thank you guys for having me so much. I I was so excited to be asked to be on this. It's been fun. No, we appreciate it. And if you ever do an online campaign again, please send me a message. I'll jump in if you have a, if you have a chair. Although it sounds like your games are way too popular. Uh, no, actually, <laughs> they I, you would think, but no. Um, I'm part of Lurking Fears with Matt McLeod. Absolutely. Um, and you know, I'm competing with people like Matt. And uh, Ram Olel, who is an amazing GM. He's the one who's running Alien. Um, and some other guys. And they just get all the love. So, but I will, I will keep you guys in mind. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I, kinda, I, love I got it. a little fried with the online gaming um, or GMing. I'm part of two online campaigns right now. But I'm not running anything at the moment. I just needed to kind of take a little break. It's harder online. It really is. Yeah, no, it, it definitely is. Um, I, I'm i running two right now. I might be starting up a third. Uh, and I and I do it because I, I want to run a campaign my own way. And yeah. I haven't been able to find anything online that is similar to the way that I like to play. So I end up running it all the time and... I'm able to find players, so it, it works for me. Uh, yeah, there are always yeah. players. Yes. It's by and it's a business. <laughs> yeah. And it's our business, so we're trying to also... We're doing it for you know that reason, too, but I mean, whatever. But yeah. <laughs> it reminds me, I need to go back and listen to the uh, the gaming podcast some more of you guys. Oh, I really well, I hope you do. If you get a chance. Yeah, thank you. Um, Rich's, the D&D when Rich is running has a lot of great uh, personalities in it. It's going to, when he start with, that should be coming out in the next couple of weeks, hopefully. Hopefully. The, yep. That, and uh, that's really good. And the vampire one we just started has 
That's dark. That got darker than my Cthulhu game real quick. Oh, I really want to listen to that one too, because we, we have like, oh, I'm trying to remember which edition of Vampire. We do if have it's Vampire. the fame, if it's the big one, second, second was the monster that really blew up. I think it's the second and then, yeah. but then it really blew up and all of a sudden you got a, LARP, a lot of LARPers or, right. um, oh God, this is going to go over the wrong way, but I want to say vampire wannabes, people who were just interested in the, the whole idea of you know, vampires were really, really big and, and yeah. popular and everybody wanted to literally be one. Um, and it just kind of, it, it dampened some of the enthusiasm for us coming at it from just the role-playing tabletop aspects. So we got out of it. We've got a copy of Werewolf too, which we've never played. Um, the friend that was running the adventure campaign took some changeling and some of the other stuff and worked it into that campaign. So my character in that campaign is actually a vampire. Oh, okay, cool. It, it, was. it was. She's one of my favorite characters ever. But I want to I wanna listen to your vampire your vampire game that's oh. going on. Well, I can always use feedback. Let me know what you think when you get a chance. It'd be great. <laughs> and I really recommend for mood and atmosphere and oh my God, Alien. It is on my wish list now. I'm resisting buying the starter set until Rom finishes the campaign that we're in. It was supposed to be a four hour one shot. We're on 20 some hours at this point. Wow. Okay, cool. <laughs> we're having so much fun. That's amazing. And it's it's cool because it's all experienced um, GMs. You know, Seth is playing in it. Um, Matt started out in it. Rom is a very experienced GM. Um, the other two women playing, Gail, uh, they may not appreciate me naming them. I don't know. Gail Clonadon, um, who would be great maybe for you guys to talk to. And uh, Alyssa Ford also. She was my very first keeper in my first game I got to play um we had never played it before I think Seth had read the book at one point Rom was running from the starter set with the very first um scenario they give you so we're all essentially unfamiliar with the game and we all jumped in at once to play and it has been I look forward to it we we cannot play consistently because of everybody's life schedules but I haven't had that much fun and been that scared. And instead of sanity, they have stress levels that are hell. <laughs> well, like if it's alien, yeah, sure. Because like if our, our comms are open in our suits with everybody else and all of a sudden someone's character takes a stress level, but we hear what's happening, we all automatically take a stress level. We don't even get a roll to save. Wow. That's brutal. That is it brutal. Is. It is. Have to check it out. I, I I recommend it. It's it's definitely up there. And my um my eldest has um cult that she's only run once, but I'm I'm looking forward to playing it more too. When when you're talking horror games, awesome recommendations for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, so, sorry, I just kind of went way it, off topic and added no. to your time there. So um, believe it or not, that's that's exactly what we're passing on to other GMs, other people out there. It it. Who knows? That may be the one system that sparks someone into a career, right? You never know. Yeah. That's great. Cult yeah. is very much about the role playing. If you can't get into your character and role play it, don't pick up the book. Well, it's good to know. It's good for the uh, future uh, game masters out there to know that. And uh, yeah, we're, we're happy to have you speak for as long as you want. Uh, <laughs> again, 
everybody hears us every episode. Yeah. We want them to hear you. Well, you have very nice voices, if that helps. So at I'll least pass that on pleasant, to my wife. You're pleasant to listen to. <laughs> um, the other thing that I just got, I forgot I had jumped on the Kickstarter, was casting the runes, um, a new system based on Mr. James' work. So it's more investigative horror as well. Um, but so far, all I've got is my print copy of the one printed, uh, what are they calling it? Adventure. Um, the Secret of Chimney Pots. Hopefully, by the end of next month, beginning of December, the uh, rule book will get here. It's it's on its way from China now as we speak. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm slowly working on a scenario um, that's a ghost story for Call of Cthulhu. So I had read a bunch of M.R. James. And uh, I'm excited to try that one out. I, yeah, I think that that's, sounds great. I think that's it for my plugs right now. <laughs> well, I was going to ask if you wanted to plug anything before we get kicked you off. Um, <laughs> but apparently, no, that's great. We, uh, we love it. Like I said, I do have a, f a fun horse and um, adventure for 3.5 and first edition Pathfinder up on drive through RPG. That's nothing. Oh, plug it. absolutely. Tell great, us all about wonderful. it. It has the marvelous name of the pirate caves of captain Turkey, John. I okay. will have to look at it. <laughs> um, and it really, it's nothing but undead. Um, I've run it, I think, three different times. And they've had a good time with it. And I put a special Dwemer on the cave. So turn undead doesn't work the way they think it should. It, it doesn't really work. Because <laughs> all it would take is one cleric to ruin the whole adventure. Right. Which I didn't have right. when I came up with it. So... They just didn't realize that the the actual spell was turn on. <laughs> turn on <laughs> turn the guy on casting undead. it. <laughs> Double the undead there. Um, I think I think that's it. Other than, you know, a plug for, for Matt's Lurking Fears group, which is just a bunch of great people. Um, it grew out of Rogue Cthulhu, which used to do all of the um, Call of Cthulhu games at Origins for Chaosium. Which is how I got so, into convention gaming. Which is where you're going to see... Yeah, I'm going to be with you and Matt in Gen Con next year if we're all able to get there. Ooh, I hope so. Oh, man, I miss it. Yeah. Why? Matt's good people. So yeah. is there a, a Facebook group for Lurking Fear or a Twitter yes, account? There is a, a Facebook group, Lurking Fears. Well, thank you again, Melinda, for coming on the show and, again, speaking with us for, for as long as you did. Uh, we really appreciate it. Yeah, you've been awesome. I'm just tired enough. I'm not entirely sure what all came out of my mouth, but um, that's okay. <laughs> well, you'll you'll find out when we put it up, and I do not edit out the bad parts. <laughs> that's He's joking. <laughs> <laughs> he leaves my bad parts, and he leaves everybody else's out. He's good. Ah, uh... Well, I don't think I came across as either an idiot, a twit, no. or an arrogant SOB. So you did no, great. You were wonderful. You were a delight you. to I, have on. Thank you so much. And hopefully we'll get you on here again sometime in the future. Oh, I would be tickled to death. Good night, everyone. Good night, everybody. <laughs> Bye, guys. You have been listening to the Bardic College Behind the Screens. If you'd like to support us, you can click the link in the episode description. Or if you'd like additional content, you can follow us on Patreon at patreon.com slash thebardiccollege. If you are interested in following us or you would like to be on our show, 
You can find us on Facebook at The Bardic College or on Twitter at Bardic underscore the, or you can email us at thebardiccollege at gmail.com.